The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous supporters. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash donate. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, episode number 88. I'm a doctor. I've lived for over 2,000 years. I am Scottish. I can complain about things. Shush. Hi, I'm Don Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. Today we're discussing the classic fifth Doctor story, the one starring Peter Davison as the fifth Doctor, Four to Doomsday. And joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Dom. And Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father. How's it going? Good, good. So uh, I got to say, I enjoyed this episode. This was a lot of fun. Um, really? It was, it, was a, it was a good story. Uh, I mean, uh-huh. there were aspects of it that, uh, I mean, I'm always, I always find stuff I want to criticize just because, yeah. you know, they get the science wrong or like the, is that really <laughs> what people would do? But as it's, a- It's a uh, critic's job. <laughs> exactly. But overall, I kind of liked I kind of liked the story. It was uh, it was interesting and there were layers and I like that. Um, Mm -hmm. What your first impressions, um, just sort of an overall, then we can dig into it. Um, What 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 is your impression, uh, Jimmy? Um, well, I, I don't think I enjoyed it as much as you did. Uh, this mm-hmm. was the very first Peter Davison story ever recorded. They even recorded this one before Castro Valva. Um, and the legend is that they, which Peter Davison himself is, has, uh, endorsed, but it's actually false, um, is that they did that so that he could kind of find his, his, his feet as the doctor before doing the all important, you know, introduction episode, um, because, you know, it's kind of a make or break thing. If you alienate the audience, your first broadcast, you you're in trouble. Um, <laughs> the real reason was the real reason they filmed this first was they didn't have a script ready. Right. Um, for Castro Valva. Yeah. But um, this story is one that a lot it's kind of in the middle. A lot of people don't like it that much, but also it's not terribly hated. Right. Um, and I'm kind of in the middle on this. It has yeah. things I like, but it also it, it doesn't grab me in the same way. So um, so I don't like it as much as as other Peter Davison's. And yeah. I, I love Peter Davison as the doctor. He's my second or third favorite of the classic doctors. Um, he's really good. But this this it just doesn't grab me that much. In particular, yeah. all of the. All of the cultural performances that they have of like the the Mayans <laughs> yeah, exactly. and the, yeah. the 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 South the, of the Australians and the Greeks and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's just that's just boring to me. Um, that goes that that's just a lot of filler. As it far was as filler. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and I, I will f- fully admit. I mean, given that this might be what the only the third uh, uh, story by uh, you know, featuring the Fifth Doctor that I've seen. And I've liked all of them so far. And maybe just I like the fifth doctor uh, mm-hmm. in comparison to others. And that might be bumping it up, uh, especially given what, what comes after the fifth doctor. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Father yeah. Corey, how did you feel about this? You, uh, this episode? Well, this is, 
this is one of these episodes that I, I realized as I watched it, I hadn't seen in years. I mean, like probably since I was a kid. You know, it's just, and I'm sitting here thinking, you know, maybe I just need to go back and do my own independent, you know, watch through of Doctor Who, because there are some, this is one of these classic Who episodes that I haven't seen in a long time. And I, I enjoy it. I, I'm, I'm a little more positive. I'm kind of in the middle between you guys. You know, I, <laughs> I, I like it better than than Jimmy and I'm not, I wasn't quite as enamored as, as Dom either. But no, it, it's, it's an episode I enjoyed. You know, again, yeah. it, it was other than the... Not you know, and, and I I kind of felt that you know the the cultural stuff it had its place in yeah. the episode, but yeah, it was it, there was quite it a went bit on of too long to it too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, let's let's tell the the listeners like what what we're talking about yeah. a little bit in case they haven't uh, watched this ahead of time. I, I'm sorry, I should have did, done that first. So I'm sorry for interrupting, but um, oh, that's right. No, you're good. Yeah, the uh, this so it's called Four to Doomsday, four as in the number four. Uh, uh, meaning four days that that comes up in the episode. Um, oh, I thought it was four people. Well, I mean, I think it's supposed to be ambiguous, but there is mm -hmm. one point where they say, you know, we're, we will arrive at Earth in four days. So, yep. so yeah, um, it aired in January of 90, 1982. So, uh, you know, this, this it's very much the 80s uh, we're looking at here. Uh, and it's four episodes within this story. Um, and the doctor, uh, like you said, like we said, it's the second story featuring the fifth doctor. So, the post regeneration uh, weirdness has faded. Gone. Now he's he's settling in, and his companions are uh, Adric, Nissa, and Tegan. And right. the 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 basic subplot is, or the overarching plot is, the Doctor's trying to get Tegan home to Heathrow Airport to catch her flight uh, because she's a flight attendant. And so that sort of animates the. Yeah, well, especially Tegan's character throughout this, and it kind of it kind of gets a little annoying after a while. Though Tegan's, uh, I gotta get to work, uh, shtick. But okay, that's fine. Um, uh, it that the um, a different annoying companion overrides that uh, a little bit. Oh yeah. So a the basic, bit? yeah. So the basic plot is that uh, the Doctor, Nissa, Tegan, and Adric, they they arrive on the spaceship, uh, even though they they think they're going to be arriving at Terminal Three at Heathrow. Um, yeah. And, by the way, the doctor the doctor mentions that there was some trouble the last time I was there, and that's a reference to uh, Patrick Troughton's second Doctor story called "The Faceless Ones" that aired in 1966, and that was set in Terminal Three at Heathrow. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, that's good. I love when they do that. They make those those long, multi-decade yep. distant connections. Uh, that's why I always ask about it. Like whenever they make a reference to something. I always ask, like, is that a reference to something else that happened? And I'm surprised when it isn't. Um, so they they end up uh, on board this ship and they meet these um, sort of what do they call them? Frog people. They're, they're sort of yeah. green skinned folk. Urbankans. Uh, yeah, but the they Urbankans. look to totally like Vogons. If you've ever seen oh, yes. the, the original Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy <laughs> TV series, these guys are Vogons. Uh, yep. What was was Douglas Adams the script editor at this point? Uh, uh, no, for not Doctor at this Who? point. Oh, okay, so maybe it was just an homage. Uh, and um, and then they also encounter these humans that people look like humans from different eras uh, and places on Earth. All right, so that's sort of the the basic setup for it. Um, yeah. And there, there's four groups of humans. There are um, uh, Australian Aborigines, yep. Mayans, Greeks, and uh, Chinese people. Yes. 
And they are they claim later that the Urbankan spaceship has been has visited Earth four times to pick these people up. And and they say it's happening on a certain schedule that's accelerating and getting faster. But yeah. if you do the math, it actually doesn't work out to these four groups, especially the Mayans. They right. they uh, they're in the wrong time period to be picked up. Right. The Mayans were much later than they. In fact, the Mayans would have been after the the, the uh, Greeks, Greeks uh, yeah. If yeah. For that, at least for that period of, you know, for the Mayan civilization to exist. So, yeah, yeah, that was a bit of a um, they, they didn't do their work. Uh, you know, I compare this to the Aztecs, which we talked about yeah. a, a, a few weeks ago. And, you know, the Aztecs, we, we talked about how they did their research and it was very, you know, I feel like later on as Doctor Who went on, they they got less concerned with that historical accuracy and yeah. more of just, you know, waving a hand at it. Their uh, educational remit faded. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> now it's just entertainment. Um, so the interesting thing to me that to the very beginning of this episode was how Adric was flying the TARDIS. So he was mm -hmm. in charge. He was in control. He was, in fact, I think the doctor refers to him as the navigator or, or something at, at this point, um, which will actually come up in, uh, the next new who we watch because the doctor refers to, no, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, Martha Jones asked the doctor, don't you have like a navigator or something? And so that's, I thought that just was me. Yeah. Just interesting. Yeah. Uh, so, but in this case, he's got this, you know, teenage boy navigating uh, for him, um, and, and so they get on board, and then the doctor. There's there's no um, atmosphere outside the sh the TARDIS in the ship, and so they wear these helmets, and uh, these helmets become a huge part of this show of this episode, mm -hmm. um, and it sort of looks like a, a. It's probably, in fact, a motorcycle helmet, exactly. open face with a sort of little little like face breather that just comes down in front of your mouth and nose yeah but it's, it's not it, enclosed no it's it, it, it obviously they got you know the classic 1970s early 80s you know gold sparkle <laughs> motorcycle helmet you've seen you know all over the place right a little a little evil can evil action going on there yep um and uh and so they they start exploring outside the tardis uh, although the I think was it the doctor goes out first mm -hmm. and leaves the companions inside, and there's this interesting interplay between uh, Adric, Nissa, and Tegan. Like I said, oh, Tegan is um is very impatient to get back to Heathrow, and Adric, like he, he's like now this is straight. I I know I've called things misogyny in the past, and we've we've waved them off as just that's just the way people were. A Adric is a punk, <laughs> to, yeah. To yes. Tegan, the problem he's with women jerk. is there. Yeah. They're mindless, impatient, and bossy. I'm like, that boy needs wow. a spanking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And not just not just his character, but the actor too. Um Matthew Waterhouse was notoriously difficult behind the set. Um uh, he he, among other things, I mean, he's like a 17, 18 year old kid at this point. And he told Peter Davison during the filming of this story that he would never be able to follow Tom Baker. And and later when later when there was a uh, uh, famous actor guest starring on the show, uh, Matthew Waterhouse gave him advice about acting. And uh, oh. I saw I saw a quote from um, um, uh, from Janet uh, uh, Fielding. Fielding, who plays who plays Tegan, saying, you know, that uh, Matthew at this point in his life had had no humility, none. 
I wonder if the the uh, the uh, the scriptwriters were just like, uh, let's show the world how Matthew really is, (laughs) and and, and give him some red meat. Uh, He Uh, does. Incidentally, Peter Davison has confirmed that this about Waterhouse, but says that it's because of the situation he was thrust into that he was, you know, this young kid who had no acting experience, and suddenly he's put on this successful show. And he said right. that's going to go to anybody's head. Right. Yeah. A, a, being an act, a, a child actor. I mean, look at all the the history of child actors, especially famous ones, and the trouble that they've all gone through. Yeah. Uh, so it's yeah. it's hard to blame him at, at this age. Um, I'm, I'm sure the if if he's still alive, uh, who? I mean. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, I'm sure this maybe is a bit embarrassing for him. Today, yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's, and if, that, you, that, if you want to follow the further adventures of Adric, they're available on big finish. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I wonder though, how much of, you know, the, the parts of the script where Adric kind of gets shown up, you know, gets knocked out by Tegan or gets told off oh, by the yeah. doctor, how much of that was as much the actors doing it as it was. Well, that's mm-hmm. an interesting aspect because it, there, there were points of this where I was like, this this doesn't make like Adric like buys the Urbankin spiel like the Urbankins are talking about they're coming to Earth and they're going to, um, mm-hmm. imp, you know they're bringing the uh, their gift of themselves to Earth and their their idea is they're coming to take the Earth from humans wipe out the human beings and 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 settle it for themselves, but Adric so he buys it so quickly hook line and sinker mm-hmm. and, and and it's he's obnoxious about it like he's mm-hmm. I, I mean he's he like it was that part was like the part the one of the things that I felt was hard to believe was how yeah. quickly he just sort of like without outside influence without like you know drugs or hypnotism or some sci-fi explanation he just sort of like well you know hey I've been traveling the doctor he's my friend and uh, but I'm going to believe these guys that they're the best because why yeah, this is one of the things that is most hated about Adric is the fact that he turns traitor at the drop of a hat. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is this is not the first time. I mean, no. just back in Castro Valva, he was yep. like seeming to work with the master. And 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 even before that, like shortly after he was first introduced in State of Decay, he's like agreeing to become a vampire. And he just Adric just turns traitor incredibly quickly. Right. And and there's a reason why all all fans cheer when they get to that point where the doctor calls him a young idiot. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) that was a particularly satisfying moment. (laughs) Um, On on the other hand, notice what we've got here that we haven't had before on the TARDIS is conflict within the TARDIS crew, which actually represents an advance in the complexity of the writing, because now we have a much more complex group of characters to work with that don't all just get along all the time. Right. And it was I I did like at this moment, like where with the where he calls them impatient and bossy, he recommends um, that uh, Tegan read Bertrand Russell or Bert, Bertie, Bert Russell, I think he calls him Bert, at the time. Yeah. Bert, the, the, it, it, he's a famous mathematician. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But at the same time, Nissa is actually reading Principia Mathematica, whose co-author Russell. is Bertrand Russell with Alfred North yeah. Whitehead. Yeah. It's like <laughs> you just called women, you know, mindless and whatever. And it, Nissa, Nissa comes off as a very interesting character in this uh and mm-hmm. cuz she's been I, we've seen her in a couple of things now but I, I she she's a very interesting character she's very smart she's also very even keeled 
um, mm-hmm. which I think is supposed to be because she's not from Earth and she's different culture. Um, but she's less likely to to kind of fly off, sort of like Tegan does at some points. Mm-hmm. But but you know, she, I think she. Uh, how do I put this? She, I think she she effectively refutes at. Adric's uh, attitude, which may also be a, an attitude that you find among some sci-fi fans that women are expected in sci-fi expected to sort of be the the screamers and the and the eye candy. Uh, I think she does a good job of sort of being uh, uh, more than just uh, eye candy on the on the TARDIS, but you know mm-hmm. she's effective. Um, right. In, well, incidentally, incidentally, oh, go ahead, I was, Father. I was going to say I, I, she kind of is portrayed as kind of the classic, classic aristocrat. Yeah. You know, the aristocrat, you know, kind of a proper British aristocrat should have their, always have their, their, their comp, be composed and, you know, proper bearing and everything. And she really kind of portrays as that. Yeah. Yeah. She, but also with a spiritual dimension because she's from a a very spiritual culture. Mm -hmm. Um, This was almost Nissa's last story. Uh, because there were plans to write her out in this episode. I could see uh, that. Yeah. And, and I'm not sure at what point I haven't been able to find out at what point she was going to be written out. It could have been the point where they start to hypnotize her and turn her into mm-hmm. a robot. But yeah. that would have been really dark. And my suspicion is because they established she's an expert in cybernetics. She would have stayed behind at the end of the episode with the four leaders to help right. build society on a new planet. Right. But um, what happened was Peter Davidson said, no, no, Nissa is the character, is the companion that most fits my vision of this incarnation of the Doctor. Mm-hmm. I really, really want her to stay. And Good. they they gave in. And so uh, Nissa ended up staying and Matthew Waterhouse ended up being the one to die a few episodes later. <laughs> um, but that... <laughs> This explains the what happens at the end of the story after they finally everything's resolved. They get back on the TARDIS and suddenly Nyssa faints. Right. Well, the reason for that is because um, they already had the next episode uh, written and it was written for just two companions and they didn't want to rewrite it. So they had Nyssa faint and spend that story recuperating in the TARDIS. Mm. And she gets a vacation. Yeah, basically. <laughs> so. um the, uh, the couple interesting things that you know, that kind of happen off the bat is one of them is that um, the the TARDIS gets identified as having a molecular structure consistent with the planet Earth. Is that mm-hmm. because of the camouflage circuit? I assume so. Maybe yeah. um, it could also just be because it's been there a bunch. It's okay. Got Earth dust on the outside. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, we also find out that Tegan is apparently both a stupendous artist like here she draws yeah. these little pictures of current earth fashion uh that are just uh, are almost photorealistic in in, yep. in in a few moments and she's aborigine because apparently uh everyone in australia speaks aborigine well not just aborigine but ancient <laughs> aborigine <laughs> well, 36,000 year old aborigine <laughs> language yeah that's <laughs> incredible <laughs> that the tardis doesn't translate like the Aborigine is the one thing, the one language that doesn't get translated. The Urbankans get translated, the Mayans, the Chinese, and the Greeks, but not the Aborigines, which is I yes, thought it's was too old for the TARDIS, but not for Tegan. Uh, I guess. Wow, <laughs> she is quite the companion. Uh, so um, we are. So we we uh, 
the the doctor and the companions they get separated from the TARDIS. We have TARDIS separation and companion separation at mm-hmm. points, uh, both points in yep. this episode. Um, Nissa gets taken one place. Adric wanders off to find the doctor because you know that's what he does, and uh, they encounter these um, apparent humans, and we find out that they're not actual humans, but they are uh, robots, very very mechanical robots, uh, very clockworky <laughs> robots uh, who've had the uh, the personalities and memories of the original. Uh, we could call them abductees, sort of like UFO mm-hmm. abductees, uh, downloaded into these three uh, integrated circuits. And like that looks like something out of a uh, 1982 era Apple IIe or something, you know? Yep. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're lucky to get the three chips. That means you've got free will and are less robotic. But if yep. you're if you're uh, if you're one of the one of the lower class robots, you only get one chip that controls your motor skills and apparently doesn't give you the gift of reason and free will. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, I, 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 there is actually a, a technical uh, point here, which I thought was kind of amusing. Uh, they say that the reasoning chip has circuits linked by lines 100 nanometers thick. And we're supposed to say, <laughs> in 1982, it, I looked it up, yeah. semiconductors were packed with transistors uh, in 1.5 micrometer density. That's much bigger than 100 nanometers. Yep. But yep. today, it, it's 10 nanometer. Yeah, I was which gonna is, say I thought Intel was down to eighteen or ten or something like that. It's by down now. to ten. They've got a, and they've got a path to going. To, I think they said seven or seven and a half. Uh, so it's like <laughs> another one of those you know uh, past future technology uh, with a well another thing where the at least the, they were trying. Yes, they were, and and yeah. then they at least they they thought it out this on on paper. But another area where there was sort of like a the the the, uh, the past future. Where they talked about the there were three billion people on Earth, mm-hmm. and three billion Urbankians coming to Earth, and the Earth could no way the Earth could support six billion people. <laughs> now, if you, in case you don't know, the Earth has over seven billion people on it right now. So yeah. it's, it's sort of uh, uh, those are a couple of funny moments for me. Well, I, I love it too. You see. I always wonder when you see a, a microchip or, you know, the electronics like that, where they show the bare electronics. Yeah. Where they harvested it from. You know, they didn't make all those props like right. the face, or right. all the components inside the face. You know, where do they harvest it? And then you look at like he's punching on the computer and, you know, that had to be a BBC micro. <laughs> you know, because that was a computer that came out that the BBC was big in promoting for computer uh uh, education and so on. So yep. you know the, that keyboard came from like a BBC Micro or something like that, some equivalent at that time. They just went like an off-the-shelf system that they then built the set around, basically. By the way, I like how when they're walking around in the airless uh, airless bays in this spaceship where the robots mm-hmm. are working on stuff and Adric and Nissa are wearing their oxygen helmets, they're nevertheless trying to talk to like the Greek guy banging on the keyboard. Yeah. And, and you can hear him banging on the keyboard. It's like, <laughs> wait, there's no oxygen here, guys. What's going to carry this? There's no atmosphere. So the sound should not carry. Right. Exactly. Um, I also, uh, noted that there was a, uh, when they went into the floral chamber, which apparently is the, where the only place where there was organic life on board, uh, mm-hmm. the, according to the sensors, um, Adric, who knows everything about math, who can navigate the TARDIS, has no idea what photosynthesis is. This yeah, child's exactly. education is sadly uh, siloed into <laughs> into one area. 
And it's really unusual, too, because he grew up in a swamp and is natively a swamp person that has just taken human form. Yeah. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. So, so also, he I is love, photosynthesis. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love the way that uh, at one point they're trying to figure out how long it's been since the Greeks had been there because the, the Greek guy Bygone, which is a really weird name. Yeah. Um, well, let bygones I mean, be bygones. Yeah, it's got a Greek ending, but I don't think that's a real Greek name. I'd have to look it up. Um, but Bygone says he's been there for 100 generations on the ship. Yep. And which is a really – how do you know if no one's been reproducing on the <laughs> exactly. ship? But, but, um, but the doctor and Adric are working out how long that's been. And Adric says, well, how long is a generation? The doctor says, I don't know, 25 years. So that would mean – and Matthew finishes is like 2,500 years. And I'm going – Matthew can multiply by a hundred. Give that boy a badge for mathematical excellence. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> he is a math expert, you know. <laughs> so, uh, the the and ultimately we find out that the three billion Urbankins that are on board this ship are really store you know personalities and memories that are stored on microchips uh, in these big in these file cabinets. Um, and I have to say, Adric is is really he's really like obsessing about the three billion on board the ship. There are several scenes where he just spends the entire scene going, "There's three billion people here somewhere." Like, all right, yeah. dude, calm down. It's like, <laughs> how could that. three billion people fit on a spaceship? You mean like the TARDIS is bigger on the inside? <laughs> like, yeah, it's it's not unheard of. It was it yeah. was kind of funny that they had him doing that. Um, but there's this. I feel like there there are a couple of themes for this episode. And one of them is that technology itself isn't evil. It's the way that it's used. I felt like that that was a a key theme of this episode. And Bygone expressly says that at one point. Right. And, 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 and and you know, and they kind of demonstrate it by how the, the, the robot people that have reasoning and free will uh, use that, eventually to turn against the Urbankans uh, and, and to you know rebel against them. Um, mm-hmm. But they also talk about that there's a, a moment where the, the monarch, so you have three Urbankans, basically. You have the monarch, the ruler, um, and it turns out that he's actually organic, even though the partly, sens- partly, partly. organic, even though the censors didn't, it contradicts what the censors said earlier, but they never go back to that. So uh, I was kind of uh, thought that was interesting. Um, and then there's, the, his assistants, um, persuasion and what was the other one? Uh, uh, enlightenment. Enlightenment. Right, right. right. Yeah. Very interesting uh, name. Persuasion is sort of the secret police sort of guy. So persuasion, yeah. quote unquote. Uh, yeah. What, what 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 they do after they've taken. So initially, as their bankins, they look like frog people, too. But they become yep. attractive, stylish 1980 yuppies um, yep. under the Based influence on, of Tegan's drawing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and we're eventually told that their names, Persuasion and Harmony, are short for their titles. I'm sorry, Persuasion yep. and Enlightenment are short for their titles, Minister of Persuasion and Minister of Enlightenment. Right. So they like head monarchs, government agencies, the Ministry of Enlightenment, which would be the, the propaganda department. Right. And the Ministry of Persuasion, which would be the secret police. Yeah. Right. Very uh, 1984-ish, the, the Orwellian 
yeah. sort of uh, names for it, which is uh, we can't discount the influence of Orwell at this point, by the way, in 1982, as we were approached. I remember as we approached 1984, the date that the book took place, um, there was a lot of references in pop culture, yeah. direct and indirect, like like this would be an indirect reference uh, to 1984-ish Orwellian sort of uh, language uh, concepts. Uh, and I yeah, think this David, is one of them. David Bowie had a song about 1984 that was famous and stuff. I remember yeah. when 1984 was like six or seven years away, it seemed like, wow, that's so far in the future. Just We'll never get there. You know, yeah. year 2000. Yes. Folks, we're old. That's just a reminder. Yeah, that's that's what it is. <laughs> so um, now the, another really interesting reference, uh, uh, external reference or pop culture reference comes when the monarch explains the nature of love. Uh, I'm sorry, the nature of how they conquered death uh, by integrating their personalities and memory into machinery. And Nissa asks, well, what about love? Uh, and Enlightenment defines it because and then the monarch's like, what are you talking about? And Enlightenment defines it for him as the exchange of two fantasies, yeah. which is a quote from the 1939 film The Rules of the Game or La Regle du Jeu, uh, directed by uh, Jean Renoir. And it depicts upper class French society and their servants just before World War II, showing their moral callousness on the eve mm. of their impending destruction. And many people consider it the greatest film of all time, actually. Uh, I, I haven't seen really? it myself, but I mm. read uh, I read I read. Uh, an article about it in response to this um and in several places they talk about it on when you when people make lists of the greatest films of all time uh, interesting that, that shows up at the top mm. very often uh and and i could see how the 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 way that the movie describes it the the you know the the french uh, upper class pre world war 2 was like a lot of uh, like we sometimes talk about the 1920s in america uh sort of detached from uh, the 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 consequences of actions. Uh, I, I suppose in some ways, like the Great Gatsby, depicts some of that. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's interesting because the way that the Urbankins are sort are are portrayed in this, they're also detached from real emotion, from mm -hmm. and especially from love. Uh, yeah. And so and so when they would they have to have love defined for them, they 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 proclaim it the exchange of two fantasies, which is, you know. A, a skeptical view of love at, at the minimum, shall we say? So I, I, I thought that was uh, interesting. Anyway, yeah. Um, By the way, so, another reference, uh, one that Americans probably won't catch because it's a cricket reference. Um, there is a moment where uh, Peter Davison um, is is talking about uh, why he's got a cricket ball, which becomes important. Oh, towards right. the climax of all this. Right. Because we have a really great but ridiculous scene involving the cricket ball. But when <laughs> there's when they're setting that up, he 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 mentions I used to bowl a very good Chinaman. And at the moment he says that, he looks at Bert Kwok, who's playing <laughs> Lin Fu Tu, the Chinese leader. Yes. And um so a Chinaman in cricket is a an uncommon uh, way of bowling the cricket ball. It's apparently a leg spinner who bowls from the left hand. Uh, so almost like in baseball, it would be sort of the equivalent of a uh, someone who throws a screwball or uh, yeah, yeah, that exactly. sort of thing. Okay, uh, it's, it's yes. considered hard to do. 
it was a it was a funny moment because he, the doctor looks distinctly uncomfortable having just said something so politically incorrect. Uh, you know, in front of the, spe- <laughs> speaking of Bert Kwok, by the way, by the way, who mm-hmm. plays Lin Futu, he's probably the most famous actor in this episode, you know, of the other guest than actors, Peter Davison. other yeah. than Peter Davison, but of the guest, yeah, the guest actors. Um, and folks may wonder where you might've seen him before. If you've ever seen any of the pink Panther movies, oh, uh, he played Kato. Kato the whole yeah, time. He's there. I kept wanting to yell, not now, Kato, you fool. <laughs> <It's spectacular>. <laughs> <laughs> I, I loved those movies as a, as a kid. Uh, and I still do. So, uh, it was, it was awesome to see Bert Cook there. Uh, uh, playing uh, Lin Futu. Um, so then we have an interesting moment where Tegan is fed up with everything here. She She's fed up with the doctor not taking action. That Now that they know that the Urbankans are going to go, uh, they're on their, their aim is to destroy Earth, essentially, or, or the Earthlings, uh, the humans. Um, she's fed up with the doctor, and she decided, I'm going to take the TARDIS and fly back to Earth. Not sure and how strand them out in <laughs> space and time. Well, especially given how Adric, who apparently is supposed to know how to fly the TARDIS, ended up inside the spaceship instead of at Heathrow Terminal Three. That that she thinks she can do it, and she's got this manual, this awesome TARDIS operations manual, which is yeah. really kind of funny that there is one. Uh, and like she's like, yeah, oh. and this is like dead tree hard copy. Yes, yeah, yes, and yeah. it's about a thousand pages. I mean, this is this is a thick book, and she's like paging through it, looking for the what the on button, like, yeah. and, <laughs> and the whole time she's sort of like randomly flipping switches and pressing buttons, which to me that I would think would be a bad idea, yeah. and crying at, in frustration until finally she gets the thing activated, and dematerializes about eight feet outside the spaceship. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. At least she at least she moved it and that's yeah, impressive. That 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 much is impressive. Well they, so, they did kind yeah. of say that the TARDIS had been drawn off course by some kind of magnetic something or another on the ship that caused it to land there instead of Heathrow. So that could be the explanation why it didn't actually go anywhere. Right, right. Uh, and mm. yes. But she oh gosh, she like it just felt like why are you why are you trying to fly this thing like this you know, is a bad yeah. idea well that this this is another thing that made it hard for me to get into this episode but i do like it when she's like crying and frustrated it's nice acting from janet building yes. also i like the part where she like gets so frustrated she throws the tardis manual on the floor and kicks it and then gets up on top of it and stomps <laughs> on it yeah <laughs> <laughs> she was mad uh, that was good i like that you know, I it generally I like I like Tegan, but not at first when she yeah. before she leaves the TARDIS and come back. Yeah, I hate that. I, I yeah. did not like her when she was. I got to get back to my job. I got to get back to my job. I got to get back to my job. Right. Yeah. When she comes back, she's a much better character because they get rid of that. Yeah. Yeah. At that point, she's a willing traveler and she's not fighting the audience's expectations because what we I mean, we, the fans would love to travel on the TARDIS. Right. So when you have someone constantly talking about how they don't want to be here, it's like a total buzzkill for the fans. And and we get that sometimes in New Who. We've got that. We got that with Mickey at first and Mm -hmm. and, you know, some of the other sort of secondary companions who get dragged along and who complain the whole time. Uh, there's yeah. a, uh, apparently a temptation to have a character like that on board. 
and, and uh, for variety, it can work, but you need to like with Ian and Barbara, they were kidnapped. Right. Um, but um, they reconciled to the situation and came to appreciate it. And Janet Fielding did, too. It just took longer than it should have. Right. And she but, was too shrill about it in the meantime. Right. 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 I, I also she actually mentions at, the, at one point her her poor, poor aunt who was driving her to work that that morning. Uh, when they were abducted by the master uh, and like her aunt got killed and she kind of, it's a kind of a throwaway. I'm like, doesn't like, I suppose when people are traumatized and grieving, sometimes they focus on the things that they can deal with as opposed to things they can't deal with. So she focuses on getting back to work as mm-hmm. opposed to the mm-hmm. fact that her aunt is dead, but it, it, it did kind of jar me a little bit. Like, why aren't you more upset about your aunt being dead than about being late to you to work? Uh, so I don't know. I, I guess, but I, I, as I say that, I, I guess it's, it, it could be kind of that she's traumatized. Well, and, and she kind of threw it out as a slap, you know, it's like, at, yeah, at the doctor, at the, at the doctor, you know, just kind of slap him upside the head. By the way, do you remember this happened? <laughs> right. So let's let's all pile on Adric again, because uh, <laughs> it's just a, he's just a, a, such an easy target in this episode. So uh, he he gets that he's this idea that he, wow, wouldn't it be awesome to be made into a robot that can't love? Like he kind of gets this idea that it would he would love to do this, and then he's like a blabbermouth about everything related to the Doctor and the TARDIS, and like oh yeah, it's the TARDIS, and you can't really get in unless you have the key. And Tegan has the key, but if you got inside, it's huge inside. You can fit yeah. everybody in there, and you can take it to Earth instantly. Like like shut up. Well, and, and, and this right says that you know right, and he completely well, the, ignores her. Right. And then uh, and then we get another scene where the Doctor uh, is they're in their guest room. Uh, with the bubble wrap sheets, I don't know if you guys noticed that. Oh yes, the, the bubble bubble wrap showing up again in uh, the in Doctor Who, and uh, you, he, the Doctor had this noise device that was you know masking their their uh, speaking so that they couldn't be spied on. And as soon as he turns it on, he turns to Adric and goes, "Now listen to me, you young idiot." <laughs> You're not well, so when you went into the rec room. They, they, you know, they made it oh. all nice when they were in the guest room. Oh, right, like, right, right. Let's go check out the recreation. And as soon as they're in the rec room, now let's, you know, how, how did I had <laughs> yeah. that looked up? And it's like, young idiot, you're not, not so much gullible. Now listen to me, you young idiot. You're not so much gullible as idealistic. I suppose it comes from your deprived, delinquent background. You know, it's just like, yeah, yeah. Just, just keep it up. You know, this, this is better than the, the Picard. Shut up, Wesley. Yeah, I was just thinking of that. Oh one. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there, there comes a point in all of these '80s sci-fi shows with, that feature uh, children too brilliant for their own britches, where they need to be put yep. in their place. <laughs> so surprisingly, uh, back in the '60s, Will Robinson was remarkably humble, despite being an electronics and engineering genius. Yes, yes, uh, and still is apparently in the. Uh, in the 2018 version of Lost in Space. Oh, I haven't seen <laughs> but, that one. Yeah, I, but still I, humble. I, I wanted to rag on uh, Monarch um, yes. in connection with Adric because Monarch seems to be a really ineffective Monarch. I mean, he spends almost the entire story sitting on his throne <laughs> chair right. thing and not moving and issuing bellicose declarations like, instructing people not to tell the characters anymore. You know, it's right. like, that's enough. You don't need to tell them anymore. Do not tell her anymore. And then 
they get told more and monarch just goes along with it and he's and he's oh now these characters have gone too far and then he lets them go farther right it, it it's nothing he does it like takes no action he's constantly threatening to do stuff well then he never does well then he thinks he knows what's going to happen so oh well, this is going to happen and that's going to happen and this is going to go here and this go there and then does it doesn't work yeah. that way at all. Right. And, mm -hmm. and then towards the end of the story, he gets up out of his chair and strolls around the spaceship, issuing more bellicose declarations, and then goes back and sits down again. Right. <laughs> and, and for some reason, he's obsessed with winning Adric's favor. I mean, yes. it, it, the, now they on screen, they say he wants Adric to be on his side so that Adric, being an organic, can hoodwink the people of Earth into buying into the Urbankan plot. But Adric's not even human, and you've got human-looking robots that actually know something about Earth. I mean, if they if the only way they would know Adric is a human or is a is organic rather than a robot is if they ran a test on him. And if they ran a test on him, they're gonna find out he's not human. <laughs> right. So yeah. He's, yeah. He, and how is this how is this one boy gonna swing world opinion? <laughs> so Monarch is, so obnoxious. Exactly. <laughs> Monarch is just incredibly overinvested. It's like I'm he's sparing the doctor's life and stuff just so he can get ah, now the boy will be on my side for sure. Yes. <laughs> what? Yeah, the monarch is particularly ineffective throughout this, and that that's a, a a knock on him, and and maybe a knock on the writing a little bit because you oh, know yeah. you want to have an effective villain that makes the 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 victory that much better. Uh, so he is uh, particularly ineffective. So uh, to, now let's get to the the the, uh, the visual that everyone probably remembers from this episode, oh, yeah. which is this is the, this is all I remembered from when I saw yeah. it in the eighties. So we yep. we talked about Tegan, you know, materialize the TARDIS outside the spaceship. So the Doctor's going to get into the TARDIS because there's no way Tegan's going to bring it back. She just can't figure it out. So he has to go out uh, into space and float between them uh, to to the uh, to to the TARDIS, and um, he ends up he's got one of the those helmets on, which are not all that effective. Uh, yeah, he's got like six minutes of air. They establish, yeah. and of course. He runs out of time uh, because the Urbankans are, are interfering with him. And, and, and by the way, this is the first physics mistake in this scene because he's got like a cord that is linking him to the Urbankan spaceship. And right. they untie the cord and that causes him to lose all of his inertia and stop <laughs> flying towards the TARDIS. Yeah, was, yeah, that was a little confusing. Like it should be just you tied the cord. So now he, it's a, it's supposed to be a safety line in case he misses the TARDIS. But, you know, if he doesn't miss the TARDIS, it doesn't matter. He has to be untied anyway. Um, so we do we there are other times when we see the doctor in, in space uh, and we establish that the doctor can survive without a spacesuit for periods of time. We see that in uh, the 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 uh, doctor, the widow in the wardrobe where the 11th doctor was able to survive for some time. And then in Peter, the most Peter recent, Capaldi. yeah, the mm -hmm. most recent series oxygen, uh, except he went blind from it uh, being exposed to space. So, but we, but we, it is established that Gallifrey and uh, time Lords can survive in space for a period of time. Um, well, and anybody can, it, but not, it's just seemingly a little longer than us. Right. Right. Um, uh, although, yeah, there, is it is it a myth that uh, the whole like your your eyes will pop and your blood will boil instantly? 
it, it takes it takes a number of seconds. You can okay. you you can survive. It, the one of the big problems is if you hold your breath, you're yeah. going to rupture your lungs yeah. like crazy. The pressure, so, yeah. Yeah, so what you need to do is expel all of the air in your lungs and you can conceivably survive for a very short period. Okay. Okay. Um so he does make it uh eventually, of course. Um and then we get around to this there's been this this poison that's been that, that that's they've been harvesting from poisonous tree frogs uh that they mm -hmm. have on board the ship for some reason. And uh well, well, wait, are we going to finish up with the cricket ball in that scene? Oh, yeah, oh yeah, well, let's get back to the cricket ball. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so what happens after he loses his inertia is they try to do something clever and I give them points for that and it's yeah. a great mm -hmm. visual. But it also doesn't work in terms of physics. He takes out his cricket ball. He throws it against the Urbankan ship. And when it rebounds to him, it pushes him towards the TARDIS. <laughs> right. And, and this Almost, would guys, but not quite. <laughs> almost. Really, he would have started moving towards the TARDIS minimally when he threw the cricket ball. But when it returns, it's not going to have any more force than it did when it left him. Right. And so really this wouldn't happen. But right. points for trying. Yeah, like, <laughs> right. The, the key thing is, is the cricket ball, throwing the cricket ball would have started moving. And that's what they should have done. Uh, and, you know, I would I would have accepted moving faster than you he really would have. You know, that would yeah. be OK. But the, yeah, the the rebound being what pre, uh, pushes him was nope. Um, so uh, sort of jumping to the um to the 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 end here uh they've they our bankins have been harvesting this this poison from tree frogs do do we remember why they were harvesting it like uh, to, to kill people on earth by miniaturizing them because a trillionth yep. of a gram will totally shrink you to it's microscopic like, size. And this kill this you? is one of these absolutes where this is like the absolute most deadly poison ever known in the entire universe. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that's not a, that, that's not just a new who thing. It shows up in classic who as well once in a while. Right. Yeah. And, and, and also a needlessly um, complex or complicated uh, weapon against, you know, instead of just like zapping people or yeah. whatever. At, at, we at, least, at, at least they didn't tell us that it's, you know, five billion times more toxic than strychnine or something. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. So uh, the so the doctor engineers this revolution against uh, of the of the human like androids against the or Bankins against the monarch. Uh it, but right at the end he very quickly it very kind of cavalierly poisons the monarch. Yeah, this. he's got this bottle. It's like it's it's like the size of a large Coke bottle or something. Yep. And he just throws it at the monarch and who's out of his chair again. And yeah. the monarch starts shrinking down immediately and he doesn't. He actually doesn't die. You think he does, but if you yeah. watch closely, he stops shrinking at some point. And the doctor says he, he's partly organic, so mm. apparently that's why he didn't shrink all the way. And then the doctor puts one of the oxygen helmets on him and pats it on the top. Yeah. So, right. so apparently, Monarch has survived in miniature form. But wait, haven't you established a trillionth of a gram or something would kill a normal human being? And you just splashed this stuff at yeah. the monarch like with no protection class. for yeah. you and your buddies? 
I mean, a, a trillionth of a gram is going to float around in aerosolized form in in the air and kill you guys. <laughs> yeah, right. exactly. Uh, yes. So that another another uh, inconsistency in it. Um, and we really didn't talk about like the 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 monarch's true plan, which was to go back in space and oh yeah, all this other stuff. A, time. He wants to travel faster than light so he can go back in time and meet himself at the beginning of the universe because he's convinced he's God. Right. And it, I, I mean, I, there's not much to say, but it. it was kind of a tacked on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was, it wasn't part of the, the, the rest of the story. It didn't seem to fit. And so it was kind of an odd, like, I don't know, maybe we needed to, again, play for time and expand out the fourth episode of this or something, make, make it seem more cosmic and some something. Right, right. Uh, it was yeah. well. It, it it did kind of feel like a, a poke at Star Trek because Star Trek kind of popularized this idea of you know you do the slingshot effect and go faster <laughs> than the speed of light and you'll go back in time. Right. This you know. and and every time they meet a god surrogate on Star Trek, it's somehow bad. Yep. Right. Right. Was this before or after they did the uh, the slingshot the the slingshot on Star Trek? Well, they did. Well, they did it in the original series. Did yeah. they? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, the no, Gary it was Seven because the, the yeah. movie, the movie itself um, that did it was for Home. Yeah, yeah, and that was you know that was eighty six five. Yeah, okay, eighty six. Yeah, I think it was eighty six. So I mean, you know, so that was that was it was after the Apple Macintosh came out. I know that because right. they used the Macintosh in it. But um, yeah, so the, it wasn't the movie. Quaint. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, uh, actually, it was the keyboard that was quaint. Transparent oh, aluminum. Oh, I know. Was, uh, yeah, I was mix, <laughs> mixing two different lines. You know, they actually invented transparent aluminum. I don't know if you yes. know. Yeah. Yes, we have we it now. Have, we might have talked about that before. How do we know that guy didn't invent it? Exactly. <laughs> I love Scotty. Anyway, now that's a companion for the doctor. Scotty would be awesome. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, all right. So, um, so that's about it. I mean, so we get to the end and then we, we talked about, you know, Nissa fainting away in the in the uh TARDIS yeah. control room after they they get uh, take off. The androids are going to fly the the spaceship to another world and um, colonize and there. Colonize it, yeah. Um, By the way, a couple of really short notes. I like the doctor says early on when he's asked what he's a doctor of, he says, "Well, everything really." Um, <laughs> that's nice. Uh, there's a bit where they've had a robot. I like how all of the cultures except the Greeks have dancing as their cultural display. And the Greeks have wrestling and fighting. Yep. <laughs> and, and, um, but all the others are dancers, but at one point they've like stabbed a robot. And this is where we first learn their robots because right. it looks like they've just stabbed a guy to death. Um, but then they take the guy and put him on a table and he's got like a cut in his torso from the stab wound and they lay him down and a bright light shines and then he gets up and his wound is repaired, but his shirt is not. So we can still <laughs> see the wound. The right. wound is gone. Um, finally, uh, at one point when they're trying to rescue, uh, when the doctor is trying to rescue uh, uh, Adric and Nyssa, in an oxygen deprived environment, he says, it's OK. He's got helmets for all of them but him. And he says, it's OK. I can go into a trance to reduce the need for oxygen until you can get a helmet ready for me. And he proceeds to do the trance of hyperventilation. 
Yeah. He's just like breathing in and out all the faster. It's like, guy, I don't think you know what this word means. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. A little, a little, he, the, the Peter Davidson got, should have got a little different direction on yeah. that. Uh, one thing that actually came up is that um, this episode establishes the date of Legopolis and Castrovalva, uh, what the date they occurred, because Tegan says she was trying to catch flight A778 at 1730 or, you know, 530 on February 28th, 1981. So which actually was the day that Legopolis was broadcast. So mm-hmm. they were they were trying to establish that. Now, I'm, I don't know whether there was an actual flight A778 out of Heathrow on that date, but there might have been. Uh, it, I'd like to think there was. Um, so I, is there anything else we want to say? Um, the uh, you know, we, we didn't talk about the monopticons, the uh, the the giant balls with a glowing light on it that act as video cameras. Yeah, I thought those were overused because they mm-hmm. if if you, the doctor kept having to disable them and he kept doing it in different ways. Yeah. Some of the time, but not other times. And I thought it was a nice idea to have those, but I think they kind of overused them. Yep. And because they proved to be like Monarch, they proved to be very ineffective. They don't work anytime, you know, you don't want them to. Um, I mean, and this is another thing, like the doctor disables the first one by putting a hat over it. And that's, (laughs) that's a nice moment. But then Monarch is such an ineffective leader. He doesn't have any, any robot go remove the hat. (laughs) Exactly. It just stays there for the, you know, for like three episodes. Yeah. Um, Also, I think, I'm not sure if the Monopticons were superimposed or not. I didn't see strings on them, and they 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 looked pretty good. Yeah, I got to say that I think they were added in in post as special effects, and they did a pretty good job with it uh, in that case. They they were definitely better than the uh, green screen behind the ship. Or, or the green screen hood that Bygone uses when he raises up his robot oh, yeah. face. Oh, you yeah. can clearly see that his real face is just being super – is still there and they're just raising up a yeah, green screen. Yeah, it just kind of – it slides up instead of – or it yeah. kind of cuts off as it's sliding up, you know. The face doesn't actually move, uh, yes. Yeah. Or the uh, when he opens up his chest cavity uh, with the, the little uh, fabric uh, opens up and there's the green – they've got a green screen on his chest. Or the uh, robot stuff inside. Although at a later point, they must have had him like stand behind a uh, a practical effect right. as he reached in to yeah. grab the uh, the chip in his chest. Uh, yeah, right, so. right at the first uh, first uh, cliffhanger. Yeah, that right. that looked more real. Yes. Uh, okay, so I think that's uh, that's all we probably have to say about this episode. Um, uh, I th- I think maybe I enjoyed it so much because I could uh, really take it to Adric because <laughs> there, there will, will be more. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to that. So, uh, folks, what do you think of the this fifth Doctor story for to Doomsday? Uh, and you know, do you disagree with us on uh, on Adric? And uh, is he in fact the greatest companion ever? I know there's someone out there who thinks that Adric was the best companion. So, and I want to hear from you. Uh, so. Let us know uh, by going to sqpn.com and leaving a comment on this episode's uh, listing there or go to the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page and leave us some feedback on uh, uh, the post there 
or you can send us an email to who at sqpn.com. You can find a, uh, a an in-order production order listing of or airing order listing of all of our episodes in the order uh, that the original episodes we're talking about aired at uh, sqpn.com slash TARDIS archive. If if you don't understand what I'm saying, just go check it out and see what we got there. I'm I'm pretty happy with that, uh, providing that service. Yeah, it's really kind of fun. Uh, You can find links to all our personal social media and websites on our show notes at sqpn.com. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the 10th Doctor story, the, fir- the f- uh, first story of the second 10th Doctor season with a new companion. Uh, and the episode is called Smith and Jones. Uh, until then, Father Corey Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Doctor Who. Uh, glad to be here. And thank you, Dom. And Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening. And remember, <clears throat> we need doubt. It's the greatest intellectual galvanizer. When will I see you again? Uh, Soon, I expect. Or later. One of those.